Great. We're going to be in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And this is, uh, I love the moment that we just had in worship because I believe it really associates with what we're going to be talking about today. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. John 12, 1 through 8. And it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, was. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served Lazarus and was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. What we want to title this message is The Long Worship. The Long Worship. We're going to talk about three things. One, to pour what you have. Two, to pour always. And three, to pour it all. Pour what you have. Pour it always and pour it all. Will you pray with me for a minute? Lord, we love you. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. (laughs) In your presence, there is freedom. In your presence, there is rest. God, affect us for your presence. Affect us. God, change us. Change us, Lord. We welcome you, Spirit. We welcome the Spirit of the living God to do what only he can do. God, open our eyes and our ears to see and hear all that you want to show us. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The long worship. Now, the long worship might sound like a weird title to you unless you know that we're in a series called The Long Church. The Long Church, a series we started last week speaking about this simple question and answer of what happens when you do something and keep on doing it. The Long Church. See, because just because something is long, it's gone on for a long time, just because something is old or because it's lasted does not make it good. We don't want to just be an old church. We want to be a long church. Just because something old doesn't mean that it's good and we want to be a long, good church. Not just an old church who isn't isn't faithfully committing to Jesus and each other, but we actually want to be an everyday church. We talked about last week that we're a church who does things consistently that others do occasionally. That we are fully committed to the purpose of God and the purpose of God in each other. And we're not just an everyday church, but we're also an until heaven church, which is to say that we aren't going to stop, which is to say that we're going to go until heaven comes back. 
which is to say that Jesus has a mission for us to accomplish. We're not focusing on the temporal. We're focusing on the eternal. We're setting our minds towards the things above where God is, not on the things below. That we're committed to the purpose of God in our church and in each other. We're a long church. We talked about the idea of who are we becoming, which really is answered by who are you becoming? Because whoever you become is whoever we become. Who are you becoming? Who are we becoming? What does Grace Covenant Church look like in the next 40 years? The long church. The long church. An everyday church and until heaven church. And today we want to talk about the long worship. You see, it's not really a question of what you worship. It's not really a question of uh, if you worship. It's a question of what you worship. Because you will worship something. At the end of the day, you will worship something. And some of us might be like, no, I only worship God. I would never like worship something. Yeah, of course, I worship God. But some of us aren't worshiping God. We're worshiping our jobs. We're worshiping our relationships. We're worshiping all the followers we have. We're worshiping our influence. We're worshiping, our, we're worshiping a lot of different things. And you might say, that sounds like an aggressive or a strong word to use for all those things. But when you really think of the word worship, all it means is to ascribe worth, value, or worthiness to something. Are you ascribing worth, value, or worthiness, maybe even hope to something that can actually never satisfy you totally and completely? There is a worship that we are all doing. It's just a question of what are you worshiping? You find in Ecclesiastes, it teaches us that humans, I believe, were made to worship. It says Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God put eternity in the human heart. As if to say that we were made to worship something holier than us, something other than us, something different than us. It also says in Romans that we failed sometimes and that we worshiped the creation instead of the creator. We were made to worship the creator, something greater than us, something beyond us. And it also says in Revelation, one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus, that he is the one with eyes of flames of fire, feet of burnished bronze. He is the one with the double-edged sword holding the stars in his left hand, the lampstands in his right hand. He is the one who is full of glory and completely and totally pure, as if to say he is more beautiful than us. Now, Revelation speaks about God's authority to be able to Talk to all these churches in Revelation and also, I believe, speaks to his beauty. I mean, have you ever thought of Jesus, that man with eyes of fire, feet of burnished bronze, that he is full of glory, he is light, and he is pure? As if to say that we were made with eternity in our hearts to worship something and crave something more holy than us to worship and crave something greater than us and to worship and crave something more beautiful than us. Congratulations, you're a worshiper. <laughs> but the congratulations comes with the question, what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Because you are worshiping something. You see, poor what you have. What are you worshiping? Ascribing worth and value to something. As I was uh, looking about worship and, and describing and kind of looking through the scriptures on what this says, I looked back to Exodus. We're in the gospel of John, which is thousands of years in the future. But in Exodus, we find that G, uh, the Lord has finally uh, taken the Israelites out of Egypt 
captivity they were in for years and generations and generations. They've now come out of that. The plagues and the promises and the sea has opened up and the spirit of God and the fire and the, and the clouds and all of that has happened. They've gone through the sea. They're on the other side. Now, for the first time ever, they get to shape their own culture. God is teaching them something. They're learning how to worship Yahweh, the Lord. And as this comes, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. As he goes up to Mount Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments. And do you want to know what the first thing that God told Israel to do was? The first commandment. As they come out of Egypt, and now they're coming into the promised land, and now they have autonomy to do what they want under God's authority. The first thing that the scriptures tell us that God told the people of Israel to do was to watch their worship. He said, have no other gods before me. That's what the Lord said. He said in Exodus chapter 20, make no graven images, whether in heavens, on earth, or in the sea. You better watch what you worship. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God is the first thing he says to them is watch what you worship. Why? Because our hearts are idol-making factories. John Calvin said. That all our hearts want to do is produce idols that we can worship and bow down to. And you might be saying, well, that's crazy. Like God's telling them not to worship anything else. They just got brought out of Egypt and into the promised land. What is God saying here? God is not saying that anything is worth your worship. God is saying that you will worship anything. That's what we do. We, we look for things to worship. And the first thing that he says is, hey, be really, really careful. Because you're going to be tempted to worship something other than me. Poor what you have. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, Lord. Are you, Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were existed and they were created. Worthy are you, Lord and God. You see, Mary, she poured this expensive ointment on to Jesus's feet. And this wasn't like an, an unnatural thing in some ways, but it was an unusual thing in other ways. Where if you read this story and you're like, so you're telling me there was a girl and Jesus is eating with his friends and she pours a bunch of expensive perfume on his feet and then wipes his feet with her hair? That seems very strange. And you're right, it was strange. This wasn't like a Jewish custom that people naturally did. Well, they usually did is people would walk into your house and you would wash their feet with water. And then sometimes you would anoint their head with oil. You would put some oil on their head. But that's not what we see Mary doing here. Mary doesn't wash Jesus's feet with water. She washes his feet with oil. And then she cleans the feet, not with a towel, but with her hair. This is... Very interesting situation that we find Mary doing. And people obviously in the dinner party are very confused. Some people criticize her. Some people are looking at her strange, saying that it's excessive. And all I can think about is Mary saying, man, this is the best thing that I have, all of my oil that I got. And I know oil usually goes on people's heads, but I don't feel like the best of what I have is even worth going on Jesus's head, but maybe it's worth going on his feet. As it shocks you, I hope that it teaches you. 
that humility is essential in, in worshiping Jesus. Mary was so humble and humbled herself so lowly to say, this is the best thing I got. This is, this is so much perfume. It is so expensive. And, and, and I think that I need to give it to him. But I don't think that it's good enough to pour on his head. He's so different and, and holy. And he saved me. And he saved my brother. And he's changed our family. And he redeemed me. And, and I want to give him something. But I, I don't think I'm worthy to give it on his head. So I just need to lay it at his feet. She pours this expensive oil on Jesus' feet. That humility should shock us in the same way that it shocked them. Mary anoints Jesus' feet in this humble way where she gets low and wipes them with her hair. And you see, the, the, the custom of oil um, was regular to them, except that it was used for special occasions. So they knew what oil was used for. And oil was actually used to uh, anoint and appoint kings and high priests in Israel. So if somebody was going to be appointed to a high position, what they would do is they would pour oil onto their head. Now, we see Mary doing something, but Mary is not pouring oil on the head, but she is proclaiming something. She's proclaiming the same thing that Jewish tradition uh, proclaims, which is to say that Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Mary's doing here. She's worshiping, worshiping him, ascribing worth and value to Jesus and saying that you are king. You're the Messiah. You're the savior. You are the Lord. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You see, Mary did not make Jesus king. Mary just proclaimed that he was king. In the same way where you did not, <laughs> Jesus is king whether you say so or not. Jesus was king before Mary said it. Jesus was king before the disciples said it. Jesus was king before you said it. Jesus was king before I said it. Jesus was king before Kanye said it. Jesus has been king. Jesus has been king before any of us said it because we do not make him king. We proclaim him as king. What your worship does is your worship is just crowning Jesus as king. Pour what you have. Mary was pouring what she had. And I believe that Mary could do this because when you see Jesus rightly, it causes you to worship him rightly. Mary just saw Jesus for exactly who he was. That's all she did. She, she didn't do anything special. She didn't have a, this crazy thing. She had the, this encounter with Jesus. And she said, now because of that encounter, I acknowledge that encounter and it pushes, it motivates me to action. Now I'm going to do something with what Jesus has actually done for me. She saw him rightly and now she worships him rightly. And see, Mary's worship was not notable to Jesus because it was expensive, although it was. Mary's worship to Jesus was notable because it was a sacrifice. Not just because it was expensive, but it was a sacrifice. <laughs> Jesus will always look at your sacrifice when it comes to worship. We, some of us think that was left in the Old Testament. No, Jesus will still look at your sacrifice when it comes 
to worship. Her worship wasn't valuable because it was expensive. It was valuable because of a sacrifice. We know this because the worth of your worship comes from your heart of worship. Jesus in Mark chapter uh, uh, 12 says, has this moment with his disciples where he's in the synagogue and people are giving their tithes, they're giving their offerings. And as they're giving, he sees a whole bunch of men and women giving these large sums to the church. And as they're giving, they're giving and probably people are amazed at the sums and the amount and people are impressed with how much they give. And then all of the sudden we see Jesus. His gaze turns towards this widow. This widow approaches the altar, probably very humbly and lowly, and places two copper coins on the altar. Sneaks away, probably says a prayer, and leaves. Jesus doesn't go to her. He just speaks to his disciples and says, you see, that woman, that woman gave more than everybody else in the synagogue. Two copper coins equated to about one penny. You see, our worship for Jesus is not notable because it's expensive. It's notable because it's a sacrifice. This woman gave less and still gave more. This woman worshiped with less and still worshiped with more. <laughs> it's why, because the worth of your worship comes from your heart, not the amount, not how expensive it is. We see that here, Jesus is asking us to pour what we have. Do you feel like you only got two copper coins? You feel like what you got isn't enough? Like God wouldn't want what you have. He wouldn't want your worship. Your worship isn't as clean as the person you're sitting next to's worship. God probably wants somebody else's worship rather than yours. Look at the widow. God says she gave the most, even though she gave the least. Why? Because the worth of your worship comes from your heart of worship. God says, pour what you have. I'm not asking for you to pour what Mary had. Mary was accountable to pour what Mary had. I'm not asking you to look at what they worship like. They'll worship according to their stewardship. I'm asking you to worship according to what I gave you. Worship, pour what you have. And it's interesting because people, uh, they thought it was a waste. They were like, this is excessive. This is way too much. She shouldn't be doing all of this. This is, this is a lot. Like Mary, you're, Mary, you're doing too much. Mary, does it really take all of that? Why? Because it said that it costs 300 denarii. Denarii, the, 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 the amount that she, pay, she put on Jesus' feet. <laughs> the perfume was 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was a day's wage of work. 300 days of work. A year of work. Mary gave her salary to Jesus and just poured it out. How much do you make? Pour it out. That's what Mary did. <laughs> and everyone looks at her and they're like, Mary, does it really take all of that? Like you're doing a whole lot. We know you love Jesus, but does it like, does it really take all of that? You see, people will criticize your worship. But what Jesus says is Jesus looks, he says, hey, hey, hey. Leave her alone. What she's doing is beautiful. You'll always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me. She sees the value 
of me. You see, people will always criticize, people might criticize your worship, but just let Jesus defend it. People will look at you, does it, does it really take all that to follow Jesus? Like, like you're not going to drink with us like ever again? Like, like, we're, like we can't go out on weekends like ever? Like, like, like you have to give every week? Does it take all of that to follow? Like, like, like you, can't, you can't joke around like this ever again? Like, does it really take all of that to follow Jesus? Does it, you have to really have to forgive them? Do you really have to turn the other cheek every time? Do you really have to be humble all the time? Do you really have to praise him? Every, do you have to go to church every, does it really take all of that? See, people are always going to criticize your worship for Jesus. Let Jesus defend it. Pour what you have. Pour what you have. Because worship is never wasted when it's poured on Jesus. You can never outgive God. You can't outdo him. You can't say, this is too much worship. I, oops, I, I, I was too generous this week. I forgave too much this week. I, I worshiped God too much this week. No, because worship is never wasted when you pour it out on Jesus. If Jesus is worth enough to you, no worship is too expensive for you. And that's what it was for Mary. Why? Because Jesus wants your worship. He's actually jealous for it. Did you know that in Exodus, it says that our God is a jealous God. He's jealous for your worship, which is to say that he wants it. And not in a way that we think of jealousy, which is really the way that we think of envy, which is I want something that's not mine. Jealousy is I want something that's mine. And the Lord is saying, your worship is mine. I deserve it. Now it's only prideful if they don't deserve it. If you want something that's not yours and you are claiming and commanding that someone would give you something, praise, glory, honor, and worship that you don't deserve, that's prideful. But if you deserve it, if God has saved you, if he is Jehovah, if he is your provider, if God has always done, he is, is, and will be. If God is really God, it's not prideful for him to say, I'm jealous for your worship. Give it to me. Pour what you have. I'm a jealous God. Give me what's Mine. <laughs> Whatever you have, worship him with it. Pour what you have. Pour what you have for long worship and also pour it always. Pour it always. You see, our worship can't be predicated on our circumstances. Our circumstances have to be predicated on our worship. If you are looking for circumstances to encourage you to worship, newsflash, it won't happen. Open your phone, open Twitter, watch the news, go outside. You will not be encouraged to worship Jesus. You're going to be, right? Like, we are not going to say, oh man, I just watched the news and I just want to do a praise break real quick. <laughs> I open Twitter and this is the best thing ever. People are so encouraging in our country. Our country is so united. My, you're not going to look for your circumstances to encourage your worship. So you need to let your worship encourage your circumstances. We will pour it out always. Psalm 34, one says this, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
Augustine said it like this. A Christian ought to be a hallelujah from head to foot. That's Augustine saying. Pour it out always. Always. We as followers of Jesus, and if you're part of this church as a member of Grace Covenant Church, we do consistently what others do occasionally. We're going to pour it out always. Did you know that worship is not music? <laughs> like, worship is not worship music. <laughs> worship is not a music genre. It's not what this is. Now, we use music, and music can be worship, but music is not worship. We use music to worship God. <laughs> this is important to realize because when they don't play your favorite song up here on Sunday, it doesn't give you an excuse not to lift your hands, sing the song, praise God. They haven't played Maverick City in like three weeks. <laughs> right? Like they, we, we, we start to like judge how, how many of us have left the church and be like, man, worship was so good today. But we're really just thinking about the people on stage. We're not thinking about what happened in the room. We're not thinking about what I gave to God from my heart. We're not considering the moment, maybe the presence that we just had in this moment. Oftentimes we think of worship as worship music. And here's the thing. I love worship music. I love worship. I love, I listen to worship music probably exclusively. I love, I love worship music so much. They don't let me do transition here anymore because I don't let us leave worship music. You guys notice that? I'm not allowed to host anymore because we never get out of the music part. It's true. That's, <laughs> that's how much I love worship music. And music is not worship. It is something we use to ascribe worth to God. It is something we do to say, God, you are holy. It is a platform we stand on to praise God. And if music ever becomes a barrier for us truly worshiping God, we will stop using music. And we will just, we'll, we'll, we're going to open up hymns. We're going to get hymnals. <laughs> we're going to open up the Psalms and you and I are going to be the worship team. And we're going to sing in this room like a choir out of, out of tune, but singing a joyful noise to the Lord all together. Why? Because worship is not worship music. Worship is the substance that comes from a Christian's life. We're, pour it out always. What I've noticed, you, you ever see um, like, uh, it's a, uh, whatever you like, you see people and you're like, oh, they're a worshiper. You ever see those people? You're like, man, they, they worship. Maybe you see people on this stage. You see Stephen Darby or pastor Tiffany or Miata or pastor Miata or Darian, or, or you see all these people and you're like, man, they're worshipers. Like I can just tell. And even though we were made to worship, what I've realized is that worshipers are forged, not found. That people become worshipers. Over the course of their relationship with Jesus, you become a worshiper. You develop a lifestyle of worship. Now, I would love for us to come in next week and all of us to go crazy in worship next week. Yes, let's do it. I hope so. And this is not just about coming on a Sunday and waiting for the corporate worship so I can lift my hands, sing louder, and maybe shed a few tears and feel some goosebumps to say, we did better this week, church. No, no, no. Go home 
get alone, turn off the music, open your mouth, and praise God. One time. Drive to work this week, one week, and don't listen to a podcast, don't put on the audio book, don't text and drive, you shouldn't be doing that anyway, <laughs> don't, don't respond, don't FaceTime, don't put on worship music, don't listen to the radio, worship God from your mouth, pour it out always, give it to God always, worshipers are forged, not found. I was on a missions trip years ago in uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And uh, as we were on this mission trip, we were uh, helping this uh, Every Nation College campus ministry um, uh, with the college ministry. And there was a student who was the leader of the campus ministry there. And he was like one of those guys you would describe as like, oh, he's a worshiper. You would see him and you'd be like, man, this dude like is on fire for God. He's like, he's radical. There's nothing that's going to stop this guy. And I remember as we were going throughout the mission strip, ministering to people, he was just the guy who was like going to the, the cash register guy or lady or the cashier and, and trying to share his testimony. He'd share with the, with, the, with the people walking on their way to class. He would just walk alongside of them. Hey, where are we going? And he'd start sharing his faith with all these people. He was the guy who was like, recklessly and like uh, unashamed of like sharing his story and sharing his faith. And all of us noticed it. He was like that guy. And I, uh, some of us went up to him. We're like, man, like, what is it? Like, what is it about you? And he responded simply by saying, I wasn't always like this. And I can't go into his whole testimony, but it was filled with anger and bitterness and, 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 and sex and drugs and alcohol and, and parties and trying to make a life and satisfaction for himself. And he responds by just saying, I wasn't always like this. You see, when you have a testimony of a changed life with God, you worship different. And I've learned not to judge somebody's worship without first hearing their story. Because when I actually heard the depth of his story, I could understand a bit of the depth of God's redemption. And then I could understand a bit of the depth of his worship. That because he had been changed so drastically by Jesus, he was forged into a worshiper. He knew what God had done for him. Therefore, he gave it all back to God. And he said, I'm going to pour it out always. You see, this is Mary. The same Mary who a few chapters ago fell at the feet of Jesus and said, I surrender my life. You've changed me forever. I need to follow you and follows him for the rest of his life on earth will not leave him. That's Mary. This is the same Mary who actually was at Jesus's feet when Martha was making food and preparing the meal. And Mary was apparently being lazy, sitting at the feet of Jesus and adoring him, listening to his teachings while Martha was upset. This is the same Mary who's pouring her, her oil on Jesus's feet. This is the same Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who was just raised from the dead. You see, Mary had a testimony with Jesus. She sat there in front of him. And what I realized is that Mary, every time you see her, she's at the feet. Mary, when she first sees Jesus, surrenders her life. She falls down at the feet of Jesus. Look at this in John. You see, Mary, the next time we see her, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings and adoring him. You see Mary in John chapter 12, sitting at the feet of Jesus, anointing his feet with oil. 
What I've learned is that if you want to find Mary, look at Jesus' feet. If I want to find you, where do I look? Where are you? Are you at Jesus' feet? Are you adoring Jesus and sitting at his teachings, hanging on every single word that he says? Are you pouring out all that you have? Are you pouring it out always? Are you pouring whatever you got? If I were to look for you, where would I find you? Because I realize when you want to find Mary, look at Jesus' feet. And you will never, what I've realized by learning from Mary, is you'll never anoint Jesus' feet without first sitting at them. Pour it always. And then pour it all. Pour it all. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, it was very costly, but it had no, not a cost, not cost a penny too much now that it could be used upon him. There was a pound of it, but there was none too much for him. It was very sweet, but none too sweet for him. You see, worship that Jesus notices requires all. Not some, not sometimes, but all. Worship is sacrifice. Mary knew something different about Jesus, so she acted differently towards Jesus. People thought it was excessive. They thought she was doing too much. They said, do you really need to pour all of that out on Jesus? And I find it interesting Because the people who criticized Mary for how excessively she was worshiping Jesus were the ones who sat with him most consistently. And I think about it, and maybe we can easily just look at them and sometimes judge them and say like, yeah, what are they doing? Like, of course she's anointing Jesus' feet. She loves him. He, he changed her life. She's been redeemed, and, and, and he is the Lord. Like, he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is good. Like, of course she would pour it all out on his feet. Of course she would pour it always. Of course she would pour what she has. But these men were actually criticizing her for it. And it's interesting that the people who sat with him most consistently were the ones who got the most complacent. You ever been complacent with Jesus? Like, like um, you just get so used to it, used to grace, used to mercy. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, of course God did that. <laughs> That's what he does. Do you remember when you saw Jesus for the first time? And somebody told you that his mercies are new every morning. And you're like, I'm forgiven every morning? Do you remember when, um, (laughs) when you learned that his steadfast love endures forever? You're like, like it's, it's never going to stop. He's always going to love me? Oh. (laughs) Do you remember when uh, the scripture says that he has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, and you realize I don't don't have to be afraid because he's with me? 
Do you remember when you first learned that he will never leave you and never forsake you? And then you think back, you said, everybody's left me except for him. Or maybe you remember when you, say, you read that he is close to the brokenhearted. And then you experienced that truth for the first time. Or maybe you realize that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Or maybe you realize that it's by grace, not, not of active works, so that no man can boast. Or maybe you remember that his steadfast love occurs and, and lasts through a thousand generations. Or maybe you remember that he actually gave you grace upon grace. Or maybe you remember that he filled you with his spirit. Do you remember the first time you saw Jesus? What happened? I've gotten complacent. I said, oh yeah, that's what Jesus does. And we've stopped being amazed by the book. And we said, pastor, get to the deeper stuff. Like, let's, uh, yeah, I get it, the gospel. You talk about the gospel every single week. I get but like, let, let, let's go to the, the deeper stuff. Teach me something, something different, something, something new. Teach me the high religion. Let's, let's get into the deep waters. Deep waters? What's deeper than this? I mean, what's deeper than a God who, who didn't just forgive some of your sin, but he forgave all of your sin? What, this, I mean, this isn't a God who redeemed parts of you. It's a God who redeemed all of you. This isn't a God who said, I'll make you half of a son or half of a daughter. You got to do the rest. He said, I've given you the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This isn't a God who said, I'll give you some of my spirit. He says, I'm going to fill you to the overflow. I'm going to give you all of my... This isn't a God who poured out some of his blood. He poured out all of his blood. The deep stuff, what are we talking about? Complacent, what do we mean? When was the last time you saw Jesus? Because this is not a message, church. They're saying, you need to do more, give more, make it expensive, make it extravagant, do a lot of crazy things for God. No, Mary had an experience with God. She saw him and it changed everything. And she said, you gave everything from me. She saw him after the tomb and wouldn't let him go. And she says, I know what you did for me. I know the sacrifice. My life has been changed. I'm a living, walking, breathing testimony about it. There's nothing else I can do. I have to pour it all. I pour it all because he poured it all. I don't respond to God differently than how he responded to me. I'm not going to give some to a God who gave all. I'm going to give him a long worship. I want to be a church. I want us to be a church. Who pours what we have. Says, God, I don't even know if it's a lot. I don't, I don't know if you like it. I don't know if this is great. I don't know if it's what you're looking for, but I'll, I'll give it to you. We'll be a church that pours it always. That says, I'm, I'm not going to do it when circumstances are convenient for me to give excessively and give sacrificially to God. I'm going to pour it always. I want us to be a church and say, I'm going to pour it all. I'm not going to portion out my love for God because God didn't portion out his love for me. I want us to be a church of long worship. 
where we pour what we have. We pour it always and we pour it all. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you so much. God, we're thankful for your grace. God, that you first poured it out to us. God, out of reverence and awe for who you are, the God with fire in his eyes, the God who holds the universe in his hand, the God who's closer than our next breath, and the God who's in this room, we worship you. God, we're not going to give you some. We're not going to give it to you sometimes. We're going to give it all. We're going to give it always. We're going to give what we got.